Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. Past nine. This is Radio Marinara. We're the program about all things wet and salty. My name is Bron Burton. And my name is Dr. Beach. How are you, Dr. Beach? I'm very well. Good. <laughs> You're looking very well. As are you. Look at Sparky. Yes, there's Rachel who's paddling for us this morning. Let's go through the program. It's a big one. Yeah. Rex is going to be in shortly. He's going to be taking us in a slightly dif- different direction to what he often presents with his segment, Rex Hunting. Um, and taking a look at the ship's cook, the role of the ship's cook. Over time. Fantastic. Mm. Otherwise known as the doctor. <laughs> so we'll find out what that means. I immediately get a, um, a memory of, oh, what was the ship that um, used to go down south, down to Antarctica? Oh, the Aurora 40, Australis. Aurora Australis 40 years ago. Mm. Ship's cook died. Oh. They had to put him in the freezer. A friend of mine was on the boat and he said they kept going and sort of saying, hi. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> People like getting up and trying to fend for themselves. It was Mark Norman, in fact, who told me that story. Wow. What a story. Let's hope it's true. (laughs) Or not. I don't know whether it's better for that to be true or not. Anyway, um, Rex might know. We'll ask him when he comes in. And, um, yeah, what's the, obviously, a highly significant role, being the person responsible for feeding everybody. Yeah. 
on a, on a ship at sea for a long period of time. We are, we've got a bit of news that we'll um, bring to you as well. We are then going to catch up with Dave Donnelly um, from Killer Whales Australia and the Dolphin Research Institute um, in his capacity this time from Killer Whales Australia. Talking about a couple of things, old Tom, that legendary killer whale from Eden that used to work in partnership with local whalers and um, Dave's bringing a new piece of research which we covered at the start of this year, Dr Beach, on the on old Tom's ancestry. Yeah, a little bit different to what was um, expected. Mm. But, um, yeah, we'll find out a bit more from, from Dave. And also um, something I've referred to as Orca Cluedo, but something you've picked up in the news this week about uh, a shark watching, washing up on the beach at Bridgewater Bay. Uh, yeah. A bit of a mystery around. A bit of a mystery. Like it, it estimated to have been three metres long, this great white has clearly been chomped. Yeah. <laughs> Who did it? Um, Professor pop- Plum in the boardroom yeah. with the candlestick. Yeah, yeah, the lead pipe or whatever. But it doesn't <laughs> look like a lead pipe injury. It looks like an injury from um, a beast with large teeth. Mm. So probably a, um, an orca. Could it have been the orcas? But let's get, um, let's get the expert's opinion on that. Yeah, that's a good idea. Um, and then Life's a Beach comes to us via our Antarctica correspondent. Uh, our Antarctic correspondent, Cliff. Um, yeah, he um, alerted us to this paper, which is, yeah, really interesting paper. Well, he was pointing to one in um, Scientific American, but I went and had a look at the paper, which is in um, communi- Nature Communications, which is about um, seals alerting us to new depths around Antarctica. So seals can dive to great depths. Um, southern elephant, well, elephant seals can get down to way over a kilometre. And a lot of data, data loggers on seals um, have been there for a long time. And anyway, this paper found um, they looked at the data loggers and found that the seals were going to depths which were greater than shown on the map where the seals mm. were. So like, you know, hacking a seal, map says, you know, current charts say it gets down to 500 metres there, but the seals are getting down to six, 700, 800 metres. Wow. Um, of course, our maps are quite old. We don't mm. have complete um, bathymetry, that is, of the, of, the, um, of the ocean floor. So that indicated that, yeah, there were... Hitherto, a canyons that were hitherto unknown. So, yeah, we'll talk about that later on. Cool. And also, if we get a bit of time, I want to talk a bit about ocean mining. I've put on the socials, I think you have, Bron, um, a really informative video from, um, from a group called Vox and Atlas about what's happening um, with the International Seabed Authority at the moment and the Clarion-Clipperton Zone, which is this, um, this region that I talked about, I think, a couple of months ago. It's about the size of the European Union between Hawaii and Mexico, which is just chock full of metallic nodules on the bottom of the seabed, which is about 5K down. Um, that's a really interesting video. Um, I implore you to have a look at it if you have any interest in the deep sea, which I assume that everyone who's listening to this program will have, and we may get a bit of time at the end of the show to talk a bit more to that. But, yeah, check it out. It's a really interesting video. Um, and also go to, again, Scientific American. There's a really nice article there which was published about a month ago. All you have to do is search Deep Sea Mining and Scientific American to get um, a really good, informative look at that. Excellent. Looking forward to hearing all about it. Yeah. Mm. I had a beautiful weekend at Point Lonsdale last weekend. Nice. Yeah, stayed in the house down there. A couple of friends, Venice correspondent, and another one that was... Um, yeah, it was oh, such a good spot, but blustery. My God, we took the dog for a walk. I thought we were going to die of exposure. <laughs> and also saw, without the dog, thank goodness, um, some hooded plovers ah. down at the... Yeah, I saw half a dozen of them. Were they nesting? Um, I think one of them hard was nesting. Yeah, it's a bit hard to tell. Um, and I was telling my friends about, you know, the poor old hooded pl- 
plovers, they, um, they're very cryptic nests, so yeah. you've got to be careful. And um, you've got to be careful of the dogs. They really are the Darwin Award winners of shorebirds, aren't they? <laughs> I know, like I say, you know, these are birds that, for those of you who don't know, that, that nest between the high tide line and the dunes. You know, so exactly the spot where you want to put your beach towel or take your dog for a walk or something, and the nests are just sort of indentations in the sand, and the eggs are camouflaged um, sand colour. So it's very hard to see them, and they just dodder along. They're really um, quite delightful little birds. Yeah. Um, I do love hooded plovers and big shout out if you're out there and you do volunteer work with the hooded plovers because it's uh, it's people like you who are actually keeping the species alive really yeah yeah drawing attention to their plight Triple R on FM digital online via the app we're talking about ship's doctors oh no sorry ship's cooks ship's cooks yeah yeah the um I'm talking basically in the uh, sort of from the 1870s through the um, sort of 1930s when aboard a sailing ship. So the job the uh, the ship's cook cook would do, tasks involved, and um, yeah, why were they called a doctor? Hmm. Well, there's uh, there was a number of theories out, and a lot of them are just pure rubbish. But one of them was that uh, they used to do surgery, which is again rubbish because uh, the ship's captain was the, the official surgeon well unofficial surgeon and repairer but i think i was looking at the uh oxford companion last night and i came up with uh the doctor or doctoring is to secret secretly put a harmful or poisonous substance into food or drinks oh right okay. so but, but i mean like presumably the ship's cork would not be no but some of them were very very good but a lot of them were very 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 bad. <laughs> That's a lot of varies. <laughs> so when you say very bad, you're talking about their ability to actually yes. cook food and keep keep the everyone on board nourished. Yeah, because up until 1906 in British ships, you didn't require any any sort of training or certification to be able to get on board a ship and cook. No, and no food handler certificate. <laughs> no, <laughs> no certificate one in food handling there. So basically, if so, man, we're going to we're in Liverpool. We get aboard our sailing ship. We're going to sail out to Australia. Or we're going to be at least eighty days getting from point A to point B. If you've got a, a, a ship's cook who can just serve up rubbish all the time, you, by the time the crew and everybody gets to to Melbourne, they're going to be pretty miserable, ready to, to strangle them. Mm. So, a ship's cook could make or break a voice. And a lot of the things they had to cook with, because you know we're aboard a sailing ship. We were in a little cabin or caboose in the midships on deck, open both sides, and all we've got to cook with is a wood-fired range uh, and materials like uh, salted pork and salted uh, beef and peas, hard peas, uh, oatmeal and a little bit of butter and maybe a little bit of molasses if you're lucky. And with that, they had to make... Everything and occasionally bread until they got too weevily and things like that. And potatoes, potatoes would run out after a couple of weeks aboard, and onions because they'd just go rotten. So the cook had to these basic materials to try and sustain a crew for you know 80 days. So it was, it was a big task, and I said it could could make or break a, um, a trip. And they would call into ports on the way. I mean, like a, like 
in Africa, South Africa, wouldn't they? No, uh, no, they no. Pick up stuff or just no, just keep going. No, if you're on a, a commercial sailing vessel, you want to get to point A to point B as quickly as possible and as cheaply as possible. The more time you're at sea, the more wages you have to pay out. Right. Yeah, right. Okay. So time is money. Yeah. Time. Yeah. Time has always been money. Yeah. It's, it's not something new. So they, uh, yeah, they just get from point A to, and sometimes they wouldn't even be the full distance to Australia if they got held up by storms. Instead of being eighty days, so they they probably allow ten or twenty percent for, uh, you know, as a safety barrier. But if you're say one hundred and fifty days, quite often ships would be found. Yeah, they'd be begging off steamers or someone like that or passing ships for food because they've just run out. Are there any recipe books around from um, from cooks, from ships' cooks? There are, yeah. yeah you can um, – there's some from like the 1870s onward. There's a, a bunch of recipes out. Bully, bully, but salted beef with peas. What? Seven ways. <laughs> salted beef without peas? Well, uh, I've, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've got a salted story. Salted beef with salted pork. <laughs> pork crackling. In oats. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a thing to tell you. There's a thing called yeah, bully beef, which is tin tin beef. Well, it had a name Harriet Lane amongst the, the uh, sailors, and the reason they called it Harriet Lane is there was a woman murdered called Harriet Lane, and uh, allegedly bits of her body were <gasps> put into a, and processed in a, a meat processing factory. Oh my goodness me! So when the uh, sailors would have bully beef, they would call it Harriet Lane. Nice. Hey, we've got a text message here um, from someone for you, Rex. Oh. Um, I was a cook on a prawn trawler in far north Queensland in 1982 when I was 18. The only qualifications I had were high school home economics, <laughs> growing up on a farm and working at a beach kiosk kitchen in the 1970s. Wow, that's amazing. Well, you're, and that's 1982. Thank well, you. Well, thank you. Well, well and truly overqualified then. Yeah, overqualified. Incredible. So, um, and I'll throw a couple of names at you, Bron. Um, Dandy Funk. You're probably thinking of something, some type of music Anth yeah. might, might listen to. I'm thinking that's a great name for a band. <laughs> yeah, it is, yeah. <laughs> well, Dandy Funk. The sailors, you know, they'd be at sea and they'd get bored out of their brains with what they were given to eat. So they get a thing called ship's biscuits. And ship's biscuits is the hardest edible substance known to man. They'd get a flour and just bake, super bake these biscuits hard so they were virtually imprintable and you couldn't do anything with them and so they get a belaying pin uh, break these a, a what a belaying pin which what? is a wooden wooden pin which uh, run their braces and sheets around to for tying off like oh, a, right, cle- yeah. Sailing a cleat term. yeah 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 like a cleat on mm-hmm. modern on modern yacht they get that and they'd smash it smash it into a powder and then they'd go to see the ship's cook or slushy or doctor and he might give them a little bit of lard or something like that. And they'd mix that with it and a little bit of molasses. And then they'd ask the cook to cook it up and have it as a treat. As a, and it was called Dandy Funk. Wow. Very nice. I might make some of that for Halloween. <laughs> yeah, you could, you could do that for Community <laughs> Cup next year instead of cupcakes. Now, we also had another one called Cracker Hash. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Tell us about that. Cracker, I've had some cracker hash in my days. <laughs> and this wasn't just for partying, this was for eating. So this was another form of um, treat. So again, the sailors would say, get their ship's biscuits together and they'd smash them, smash them the smithereens and they'd add pork and a little bit of fat to it. Oh, my God. And uh, again, the, if they're in favour of the cook, the cook would bake it up and they'd end up with this really incredible treat. Do you know where the name came from? Uh, got no idea. Okay. 
Interesting. Uh, just it's been around forever and ever and ever. It's cracker hash. There was a you know if you read read the books about sailors who were sailing you know in the uh, 19th century, they'd make always make cracker hash. Wow, cracker hash and dandy funk. <laughs> so what what would happen say so if if the cook yeah you know, they're halfway to Australia and the cook falls overboard or something? Whose job would it then be to like, well after step, the party step had up. finished they'd probably <laughs> <laughs> just elect somebody from the crew because quite often in like Nelson's day. There was a um, in the at Greenwich. There was a like a called a hospital where retired seamen, you know, who'd been in the navy would get to live out their remaining years. And that the guys living there might have a limb or two missing, or you know, some being hit on the head or shot in the head with a cannon or something like that. And they would go to see the ship's cook. So they they never had a good name to start off with. Mm. And so you imagine a one-armed cook trying to <laughs> <laughs> on board a ship that's. Yeah. Up and down all yeah, over exactly. the show. So, yeah, they had to um, get the fire going. So they'd get up about 4.30 in the morning, get the fire going, make coffee for the crew, and then breakfast would be, I think it was around 6 or 7 in the morning, and then they'd have dinner. And dinner, I always knew dinner as a lunchtime meal, but a lot of people call it a tea. tea. Cause aboard ship, you had breakfast, dinner. And then supper? Ah, uh, no, no, tea. Oh, tea. So, right. so dinner's lunch and tea's. Tea's tea. Tea's tea. Tea's the evening meal, right. Well, no, that's, that's kind of an old English thing, though, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, well, well, in my family, my grandfather and uncles and all that all, all went to sea. So, and my, my dad didn't, but we always knew breakfast, dinner was for lunch, and tea was at tea time. Yeah. And sometimes supper. Yeah, very good. Yeah. What else you got there, Rex? What else we got? We got oh, also, aboard a, aboard a sailing ship, the cook... Would not only be the um, chief cook and bottle washer, he would also, when the uh, big sailing ship was going to put a tack or something like that, or wear ship, he would be on the jib sheets. What does that mean? Well, the jibs. The f- he's, he's looking at me as if I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, Rachel, no have idea. you got any idea what a jib is? Tim, let's get Tim in here. That's, the li- that's one of the little sails, isn't it? A little it? triangular sail yeah. up the front on the, on the four stays. Because the big one's called the mainsail. Yeah, well, is that yeah, right? The main, main. The main form is for sale. Probably... Come on, Bron, you've got no idea admit it. <laughs> <laughs> I did a little bit of sailing a long time ago. Well, then, but, yeah, the jib is the little triangular one at the front. Well, but you imagine a sailing ship, it's going to be like, you know, 20 metres long or something. Rather. And his job was to let go of the sheets when they put a tack in. So it, oh, multi, yeah. uh, multifunctional. Yeah. Um, not only could they, well, allegedly cook, but they would also do things like that. And also the proof, the, the cook would boil up his, uh, you know, pork and beef and all that. And you imagine all the nice, juicy fat that would come off the top. Oh, I'm, I'm just salivating thinking about it. <laughs> well, I've got some here if you want to try oh, it, God. Dr. Beach. Well, he would save that in a, in a cask. What, it, dripping? Dripping, dripping like yeah. My grandmother did them. Yeah, my mum used to save dripping as well. And when he got to a, a port, that would be on sold to a, a fellmonger. And the fellmonger would then get that and turn it into a candle or soap. Ah. The words we learn from you, Rex. <laughs> fellmonger. Yeah. Rachel's uh, wondering about weevils in the biscuit. Well, that weevils in the biscuit, that's good protein, Rachel. You didn't want to see that go to waste. Yeah, we, we should be eating more insects. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, we'll have to move on in a sec. Um, any, any last bits of uh, information about the ship's cook you'd like to leave us with, Rex? Um, well, we talked about this, the guy who sent the uh, text in just a couple of minutes ago. My uncle was a uh, shipwright aboard a ship 
from the 1950s through the 1980s. And as late as, uh, say, the mid-1980s, <laughs> one of the ship's cooks aboard, his container ship was an ex-bricklayer. So... Huh. <laughs> you don't... It didn't necessarily need a lot of skills. And, and I guess, yeah, when you think about it, I mean, we all cook, don't we? Yeah, yeah we all cook. One extent or another. Yeah. Basic, about, basic survival. You're talking about bricklaying and I'm thinking about those biscuits and thinking <laughs> maybe might not be quite so far removed. <laughs> Excellent. That's been amazing. Thanks, Rex. No problems, Bron. Absolute wealth of information as always. Font of knowledge. Yes. <laughs> Useless <laughs> knowledge. No, not at all. That was really interesting. Anything, any hints on what you might bring in next time? Um well, I'm going to try and catch up with uh, Jeff Naylor. Jeff Jeff Naylor was um, dive with Jim, did the first dive in the ship's graveyard 50 years ago. So Jeff Jeff Naylor is a living legend amongst divers in Victoria from the 1960s right up to the present. By ship's graveyard, you mean just oh, off the head? Paul Phillip Hedge, yeah. Yep. So I'm, I heard a word to Jeff, to Jeff a while ago and trying to line him up. So. Excellent. If you're listening, Jeff, <laughs> don't panic. <laughs> We're locking it in. <laughs> ah, that'd be good. Excellent. Thank you, Rex. Okay. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. A couple of quick bits of news. Um, Dr. Beach, before I go to you, Cliff has just messaged. Our, our Antarctic correspondent. Yes. What's he got to say? He says, good morning, Triple R. Uh, very calm seas out here in the Southern Ocean, um, which is great for folks who are generally seasick. We got some amazing photographers on board. A um, couple of pics here. I think the pics are due to come in in a minute. So Cl- Cliff's heading south, isn't he? Yes. He's, he's going down for another stint. Yeah, he is indeed. Uh, so looking forward to that. Um, so big shout out to Cliff and to all those others on board listening on this he, Sunday morning. He says, uh, some travel info. I'm sure you nautical folks will be able to understand your taxes are being well spent down here. Not much science yet. Keep up the good work. Cheers. And, uh, oh, actually, yes. And a friend working at uh, Point Lonsdale Lighthouse felt that earthquake. Scary. Oh, Point Lonsdale Lighthouse. Wow. Yeah. I was looking at Point Lonsdale Lighthouse. When Rex was talking about Rex just before and the ship's graveyard, I was looking at, there's a wonderful old picture um, just at the base of the Point Lonsdale Pier um, and you're looking towards the heads and you can see this point. And it's, the picture is of a wreck which happened in like the 1880s or something, I think. Um, and this is like kind of a flippant, amusing thing. But the photographer, the person who took that photograph, his name was Fred Kruger. Freddy, oh. Freddy Kruger. <laughs> <laughs> and I saw somebody catch a five or six kilo snapper off the pier last week. Oh, wow. Which was pretty good. That's a big snapper. It's nice to see people who don't have the, the privilege of owning a boat being able to catch decent fish from Port Phillip Bay. And if you just indulge me for a second again, Bron, I was at, um, trying to buy some sardines. Um, you can no longer buy sardines, which come from Port Phillip Bay, even though it is, was a completely sustainable fishery. Mm. Um, state government banned all commercial netting in the bay. Uh, took away all licences because of at the behest of the uh, recreational fishers, and I really dislike the fact that if you want fresh sardines, the only way we can buy them is in a big plastic box all the way from Port Lincoln. Yes, we did cover that issue at the time as this being a consequence of, of, of privilege those owning actions. boats. Yes. Yep. All right. I know I've got Dave waiting to come on the program shortly to talk about killer whales, but you've got some news. I've got a plug. How will we do this? Um, okay, you did the plug. All right. Um, big uh, thank you to Paddy uh, Sailor who 
contacted us um, during the week via uh, the Triple R Talks producer, Lou Lynn. Big shout out to Lou. Thank you for all your help as always. Um, just letting you know that there's an event happening this uh, today at 2pm at the Waterfront location in Warrnambool. It's a gathering uh, to protest seismic blasting and to promote protection of the whale ocean environment. Um, it's actually a, uh, a an in, it's described here as an Indigenous-founded group called Southern Ocean Protection Embassy. Um, this group aims to raise awareness of traditional cultural relationship with southern right whales and um, the fact that the drawing attention, of course, to the fact that the seismic blasting has an impact on whales breeding and seasonal migration. So um, that event happening today at 2pm in Warrnambool and um, the organiser, Yaron Bundle, um, brilliant creative educator, speaker on cultural matters from a family of artists and advocate, advocates and uh, dance performer at national occasions. So thanks, Patty, for letting us know about that and we'll try and organise a time um, to catch up with Yaron in the weeks ahead. Speaking of Southern right whales, I'm looking at a beautiful article um, which is um, written by Jock Sarong um, and it's mm-hmm. about uh, the day, it's entitled The Day a Southern Right Whale Introduced Her Calf to Freediver Danny Lee um, and this is in the Great Australian Bite. If you are lucky enough to um, or if you are quick enough to order what we hope is not the last issue of Great Ocean Quarterly then you will have read that but I'm holding this magnificent volume in front of me. This is the ninth of the Great Ocean Quarterlies, which have been published by Jock Sarong and Mick Sari um, and a couple of other mates. Um, Mark Willett. Mark Willett, yep. And it's just, um, to you guys, if you're listening, anyone else that's been involved, involved with getting this off the press and into our homes, congratulations, thank you, and I really hope that somehow this can continue in the future. Um, just some of the other beautiful articles in here, not only incredible photographs with... Um, with great text, again, by Jock Sarong, but articles by various different people. For example, here's one on the Pacific Gull uh, by Luis Masserai, um, talking about the Pacific Gull. And I hadn't realised, Bron, I'm not sure if you know this, but the Pacific Gull, we have the Eastern and the Western Pacific Gull, and they are distributed, unlike many birds, just around our great southern reef. Um, very beautiful birds, some of the largest of the gulls, if not the biggest. They're the ones with the big red lipstick on the end of their peak. Um, and um, this entire issue of um, the Great Ocean Quarterly is devoted devoted to the Great Southern Reef. There's been a lot of input from the, um, the Great Southern Reef Foundation, so big shout-out to them for the wonderful work that they're doing. Anybody interested in what they do, um, check them out, donate. Um, really wonderful thing here. And again, and I'm looking at this magnificent picture of a bobtail squid on the cover of um, this, um, yeah, this ninth edition of Great Ocean Quarterly. But, yeah, if you're lucky enough to, to have this, enjoy reading it. I know you will. Cherish it. It's got this lovely smell of fresh print. Um, but, unfortunately, in these days where you don't get much print, it's, um, yeah, it's probably why it's been difficult to, to get the money together to fund more issues. But congratulations. We'll um, check out whether you can still order a copy. I'm not sure whether you can or not. Um, I'm still waiting for mine. So if you've ordered yours and it hasn't arrived yet, don't worry. It's- yeah, mine only arrived um, Friday. Okay, excellent. Hopefully mine will come on Monday. We'll, we'll see. Uh, anything else, Dr. Beach, or shall we move on? I know Dave's waiting for us. I've got no, Dave, if you don't mind, just one more uh, piece. Um, we've been talking about Undaria, otherwise known as Wakami, the, um, the brown seaweed, the, the invading one, which is, uh, gets carried around on boats. Uh, that is known to be in Victoria and in Tasmania. And in fact, I was down at um, Hobson's Bay during the week and noticed some washed up near the bottom of Lagoon Pier. Um, and if you do see any in the intertidal region, 
uh, and you're sure that you know that it is Undaria. Um, and one way that you can tell, so it's a brown seaweed, and down the bottom they have sporophylls, and they look a little bit like um, shark egg cases wrapped around the bottom of the, the stipe or the stem of this, then that's, that's a sure kicker that that's undaria. It also shows that it's, it's reproductive, so they are the, the reproductive bits, the sporophylls. So rip it out, chuck it high on the beach so it's not going to be washed around. Um, this has now been discovered, um, so not only in Tasmania and Victoria, but the ABC is reporting, and thanks to Webster, by the way, for... Um, Alerting me to this, uh, it was found by a university student doing a university assignment uh, in a marina near Robe um, just recently. So they've um, stopped dredging the channel to um, stop the potential further spread of this. And just to remind you, Undaria is something, it, it is noxious because it grows in disturbed areas where bits places have been cleared. It will come in and it will grow and it will um, outcompete um, other native seaweeds and animals are there by shading them out um, and the other thing this reminds me of it's really you know it's been there for a long time presumably quite a while in south australia and gone unnoticed and one of the things that sort of gets on my goat at the moment is that there's no one teaching marine botany the identification of seaweeds in victoria at the moment to my knowledge really i know that deakin university have stopped that particular course mm. Um, there is a marine biology where you might get one or two lectures on seaweeds, but no longer do we have the, I guess, the halcyon days. Back in the 80s when I went through university, I was I had three separate subjects on marine botany, one on phytoplankton, one on seaweeds, and another one on small algae. No longer does that happen. Um, and I think with all of the, you know, the, the need for us to know what's happening about seaweeds and algae um, as we head into the future, that's a big shame. Totally agree, Dr Beach. And uh, in just a moment, we'll catch up with Dave Donnelly from Kilowaz Australia. He's going to talk to us about old Tom and also uh, try and resolve that mystery about the shark which has washed up uh, and a whole pot of killer whales hanging around. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Without further ado, we've been keeping him waiting for oh so long with our apologies, but always excitement to have him on board. Dave Donnelly, good morning. Good morning, Doctors Bron and Beach. How are we today? Very well. How are you, Dave? And I, I apologise, it was my fault for banging on far too long. <laughs> Unforgivable. Unforgivable. All right, let's launch into it, Dave. So we've given this a fair big shout-out. Um, where do you want to start, Old Tom, or are we going to go to Orca Cluedo? Oh, look, um, I'm quite excited to talk about old Tom. He's been a passion of mine since I was a a youngster, so I'm quite keen to chat about old Tom. So maybe for listeners who aren't familiar with old Tom, we we mentioned briefly the significance of old Tom, but can you give us a little backstory? Yeah, look, old Tom was part of um, approximately 30 killer whales, which were said to have been uh, associating with whalers and assisting whalers in a sort of a mutually beneficial um, effort to take down killer whales, sorry, humpback whales and uh, mostly southern right whales around the south coast of New South Wales in the port of Eden. Um, some stories speculate that he, that old Tom actually took the rope from the longboats and uh, dragged them towards the, uh, towards the humpback whales or southern right whales. And uh, that whole story has evolved over, over, well, nearly a century now, actually over a century. Um, Tom's been dead now for 93 years, believe it or not, and we're only just starting to investigate exactly who he is and where he fits in the picture of killer whales around the world. And so earlier this year we took a look at this because there was this study that was really just um, kicking off, actually looking at the genetics of old Tom and, and how far around the world um, his legacy has spread in genetic terms. 
Yeah, that's right. And look, I'm speaking on behalf of my dear colleague, Isabella Reeves, who is currently in Norway, continuing her studies on killer whales. So I'll speak to her as best I can and represent her work. But certainly, um, old Tom, uh, he was sampled just over 18, 20, nearly two years ago now, um, took, took a sample from his lower jaw, upper, sorry, upper jaw, um, using a Dremel and taking DNA um, sequencing from, uh, sorry, samples from the tooth and sequencing, sequencing that against 490 other samples on a global database. And what was found, you know, I, I must step back just one moment here. This has been a passion of mine for a very, very long time uh, since I started getting an interest, interest in killer whales. And does old Tom relate at all to the East Coast killer whales that we're seeing today. And my thinking was, surely, has to be. As it turns out, he's more closely linked to uh, New Zealand killer whales, and if you believe it or not, North Atlantic and Northeast Tropical Pacific killer whales. So that, uh, that spread of uh, ancestry across the globe is quite remarkable, and certainly not what I was expecting to see. But there is a caveat. We don't have any, really any samples from southeast Australia to compare against. We've got Queensland, we've got a little bit from Tasmania, and a lot from Western Australia. So there is a little bit of a gap, and there is still a chance that his legacy might be living on in the southeast um, part of Australia. But the evidence right now suggests that that group of killer whales, or that subpopulation of killer whales, is probably extinct now. Wow. So, so Dave, if, when you say we don't have samples from Southeast Australia, we don't. Nobody has done taken sort of tissue from washed-up killer whales of late in Southeast Australia and done the DNA sequencing to try and match or not. That's pretty much correct, Dr. Beach. Um, there is one sample that came from Northwest Tasmania from a, uh, a fairly young animal. Now, the photographs suggest. Uh, or don't actually rule out that it's not a type C Antarctic killer whale. So we're not 100% sure uh, about the origin of that particular animal, and it was also a calf. That's the only sample that was included in this analysis. Um, unfortunately, some of the other samples that were available were too far degraded or weren't properly preserved when they were collected from this particular region, and there's been no active um, on-water sampling of the animals of living, free-swimming killer whales in the southeast of Australia, which is really unfortunate because we've got great data sets from Western Australia and other places around the world, of course. It's my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, Dave, but, but killer whales, orcas, have had quite distinct populations throughout the, the oceans of the world. Yeah, particularly where they're well studied, this is well known, um, and that's the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, they're very, very well studied across the, particularly Alaska, Canada, uh, even the Northeast Tropical Pacific. And they have been broken up into these little subgroups and subpopulations and certainly family groups. Um, in all, there are 10 forms of killer whale. Uh, we have five here in the Southern Hemisphere and there's five in the Northern Hemisphere. What's going on with Australian killer whales remains to be seen. They are different from their most closely, um, I guess, linked form, which is a type A killer whale from Antarctica, but they are quite significantly smaller. They only grow to a length of around about seven to eight metres around the Australian coastline. Um, however, the ones in the, in the Antarctic, the, the type A in the Antarctic, grow to probably around nine, maybe even pushing up towards that 10 metre mark. So there's still a lot of work to be done, and that's what Isabella is doing right now, is trying to untangle um, where Australian killer whales fit in the picture, and we think it's probably something similar to New Zealand killer whales. Dave, we posted a link on our Facebook page to an article that Isabella's written along with Stephen Holmes looking at this research that she's done, but also drawing reference to um, 
partnership that existed between killer whales and also um, local Aboriginal people, so the Thawa, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, people who, according to the conversation article here, um, worked uh, with killer whales to hunt large whales in the waters of Twofold Bay. So this is this is exactly the area that we're talking about. But but this is a partnership, you know, between, and we're talking in species terms, between orcas and with humans that, that goes back a really long time. Yes, certainly. That predates the um, the colonisation of Australia and the the whaling activities of uh, the Davidsons and Boyds of those families who were whaling in the uh, in the area from about 1844 through to 1928. Um, some of the other stories that we read from those peoples uh, is they interacted in the water with these animals. In fact, holding onto the dorsal fin of uh, old time and being towed along. Um, some fantastic stories, and we all know the connection that First Nations people have with our land and our waterways, and. Uh, this is just another one of those fantastic stories. Yeah, uh, in uh, in the months ahead, we'll um, be sure to reconnect with Isabella and make sure that you're part of that too, Dave, and we can explore some of this stuff further. Um, yeah, amazing stuff. And um, we, I've already, as I said, I put a link to that conversation article on our Facebook page so you can um, go through and have a read. Um, shall we move on to talk about uh, this great mystery of who killed Sharky? That sounds like a brilliant idea. We'll finish off on something a little bit uh, speculative and a bit of fun um, and, uh, and see if we can't resolve it in the uh, couple of minutes we have here. <laughs> um, certainly the backstory on this one, of course, as you touched on at the start of the show, is a... Uh, yeah, medium-sized white shark washed up in Bridgewater Bay. Um, I got a phone call from my colleague uh, who studies white sharks, Ken Stannard, and said, Dave, have you got any information on killer whale presence in the area of Portland, Bridgewater Bay, over the last little while? And sure enough, we did have a number of records over the course of the day uh, on, uh, I think it was the last Sunday, where... Two well-known killer whales, Ripple and Bent Tip, two big males who have been seen hanging out before. Um, we've known these animals since about 2005. They were present with a few other killer whales moving back and forth throughout the Bridgewater Bay area to Cape Nelson, Cape Bridgewater. Um, nothing was observed in terms of predation. Um, the animals were hanging around the area, which suggests they were interested in something. They're top-level top predators. They don't hang around for long unless there's a reason to do it. Um, lo and behold, Two days later, this white shark washes up on the beach with some uh, significant and suspicious damage, particularly on its ventral side. Um, now, of course, Facebook lights up with uh, the world's experts on everything and tells us uh, what happened. But really, we're taking a bit of a cautious approach to this. Our working hypothesis is that we believe those killer whales likely killed that white shark. We're now in the process of proving that hypothesis wrong which I don't think we're going to do. <laughs> but how did you go about doing that, like taking DNA samples from the shark and trying to get some, you know, some killer whale DNA out of there as well from the, the bite marks or something? It's like I prompted you, isn't it, Dr Beach? Um, <laughs> Isabella has a colleague. <laughs> Isabella's in on this one as well. So one of her colleagues uh, is going to take some swabs or has taken some swabs of the, uh, the, the major wound area, yeah. uh, which is uh, between the pectoral fins on the ventral side of the animal, to hopefully uh, see if she can detect any sort of uh, leftovers from the killer whales. But certainly the appearance of the animal... Uh, looks to be that it's been taken from underneath, it's been damaged to the extent that its organs have been removed. Um, there's not a lot of the animal left 
back from, from the head and from the pectoral fins. So it's kind of hard to tell, but there are a lot of animals, as we know, there are a lot of animals out there who would love to have a piece of a white shark if it was floating vulnerable or even dead. Um, it's scavenging upon its body. So um, that's, that's the way of the world and the way of the oceans. But we think that the killer whales may have had an involvement in the death of this white shark. And if, it's, if it is true, this will be a new prey item assigned to that particular family group of killer whales, and it aligns with other activities of killer whales in South Africa in particular, but also in South Australia, where we know that they target white sharks from time to time. So it really is a fascinating story, and uh, we're going to be working with Kent. Um, fisheries also have been taking uh, morphometrics and bite-size uh, morphometrics. Um, we're also going to be working with the our colleagues at Flinders University who have the expertise to try and get to the bottom of this story. We'll provide the killer whale side if somebody else can provide the genetics and the white shark stuff and hopefully we'll have an answer. Fantastic stuff, Dave. And that, that, that's fascinating that like this is the first potential evidence that, that you we're having killer whales attacking white sharks um, in, the, in our region around here. Always great to speak well, to you, Dave. Certainly, Dr. Beach, and yes, certainly for that particular family group of animals, that we know that these white killer whales do target sharks in Victorian waters. There's no question about that. And white sharks, why not? Yeah. Brilliant, Dave. And yes, echoing Dr. Beach, always a pleasure. And um, we'll catch up with you soon. Um, last sort of 20 seconds, whale migration patterns, where are they at broadly? Broadly speaking, we are now seeing the cows and calves, humpback whales, making their way down the eastern coast of Victoria. Uh, so they're through the Gippsland region now. Um, and, um, you know, 50-50 sort of mix of um, pods, pod structure. So we've got cows and calves and just random uh, sub-adults and adults moving through. So we're getting towards the last sort of two to three weeks of the, the migration now. Yeah, great. We might catch up with you in a couple of weeks' time and um, and do a solid uh, seasonal wrap-up of whale migration patterns um, over this season. So thanks, Dave. Always a pleasure, and we'll catch up with you soon. Always a pleasure for me. Have a great day, guys. <laughs> thanks, Dave. See Bye you, Dave. for now. Dave Dunley there from Killer Whales Australia. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Um, Rachel, we've had a couple of text messages regarding some comments before about the... Uh, my, my comments about sardines, me grizzling about not being able to get um, local sardines. Indeed, you've had a, a little flurry of responses there. Uh, Ash from Geelong called in to say that Whites in Drysdale often has sardines from Lakes Entrance. I am. And Frank also sent in a message to say that Siracos Market, the Thornbury Fish Shop there, often has fresh sardines from Lakes Entrance too. Thank you very much for that information. But I, I, I want sardines from Port Phillip Bay. There used to be a dude that had a licence. He did one of the last remaining commercial netters up near Altona who could get out there and have sardines um, in the shops by 6am that morning. They ripped out of the water just a few hours beforehand. You've got one minute to cover your science paper, Dr Beach. Uh, my science paper. Uh, thanks again to Cliff um, for telling us about this paper. Um, in Scientific American, well, also in Nature Communications, which, as I mentioned at the beginning, and this is why I sometimes over-preface, Bron, um, <laughs> I might take a time at the end, uh, is that, uh, yeah, southern elephant seals have been recorded going to depths which are greater than possible on the maps so what this has done is this has encouraged people to go back and do the bathymetry again um, and in fact it was the Noyanya um, our new Antarctic research vessel uh, which is the the local well, sort of the Tasmanian indigenous language name for the southern lights um, to go back and do the, um, the assessment so the depth measurement and they found that yeah indeed here's a big ass canyon off the Vincennes Bay the eastern side of Antarctica so the seals are leading the scientists 
Let's treat this as a bit of a prelude because um, thank you again to Cliff for bringing this to our attention. He knows the people who have done this research. So let's line them up for a proper interview and make sure you're part of that too, Dr. Beach. Yeah, and just one other thing before we go. Well, look at the music. I mentioned deep sea mining before and we are going to put up a um, very interesting um, video, a primer on deep sea mining and what's happening at the moment. And I'll also put a link to an article which you should be able to get free online um, again through Scientific American, which um, I, I think is really good explaining the whole thing and the various different issues around the International Seabed Authority and Canadian companies wanting to take nodules off the seafloor. Excellent. Thank you, Dr Beach. You'll be back in in a couple of weeks. I shall. Thanks also to Dave Donnelly, to Rex Hunter, to Rachel, who's been panelling, to David, who'll be having this show up as a podcast in the next couple of days. On the program next week, Cade will be in with me. We'll be taking a look at ReefWatch. Also, Morgan Ellis and Lucy Coles talking about the AMSA Showcasing Marine Science event coming up in uh, the next couple of weeks. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.